Welcome back everybody to the Uncensored CMO and I've got a real treat for you today in this episode. I'm catching up with none other than Russell Parsons, Editor-in-Chief of Marketing Week, to find out what the most read stories of 2021 were. Where were the debates, what were we talking about and what can we conclude from the biggest news stories of the year? So I asked Russell to provide me with the top 10 most read or most downloaded uh, articles of this year and we have a proper debate about them. As you'll discover, um, a few of them overlap, so we've combined them into maybe six or seven. And as you'll also discover, we do end up on the fence occasionally. With many topics like digital and purpose and so on, there are often some very compelling arguments to both sides, so we try and do that and come to a conclusion. I also asked Russell for his opinion on what we'll be talking about in 2022. What are the next topics that we're gonna be focusing on as a marketing industry, and what should we be paying attention to? Um, I start off in this episode talking to Russell about how he got into journalism and how we ended up in the hot seat over at Marketing Week as editor-in-chief of the publication and also of the Festival of Marketing. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Russell Parsons. Let's just quickly get to know you in terms of how did you get to where you are today? If you could briefly tell us your, your backstory. Goodness, that sounds like almost philosophical in, <laughs> yes. in, in nature, that question. I assume you're talking about where I got to or how I got to the position that I'm in today as editor, editor-in-chief, indeed, of Marketing Week. Indeed. Apart from wit and uh, charm and a winning smile, I, I joined Marketing Week, goodness, I think it's 12 years. Sometimes it helps me to say that out loud. 12 years yeah. ago, and I started as a reporter and having done a lot of trade and business to business reporting to that point, Marketing Week was almost light relief, shall I say, without wanting to be detrimental to what everybody actually does who's going to be listening to this today. It was the kind of thing, well, it was the kind of thing that my mum knew about. Everybody has an opinion about brands. Everybody has a sense yeah. of what marketing is, obviously. People generally think it's just simply reduced to advertising, but no matter. So I joined as a reporter and felt at ease with the subject matter and very quickly warmed to it and found myself that I was pretty good at reporting on marketing and brands. So went from reporter to news editor after a couple of years. And then after another couple of years of doing that, became editor, I think in 2015. So six Fantastic. years ago, and then took on the festival remit yeah. last year. So it's been, been my home for a significant period of my working life, never mind my journalistic life. And I guess that's testament to the industry and uh, testament to how at ease I am as part. Tell me what the biggest changes have been in, in your 12 years involvement with marketing. What, what have you seen from where, you, where you, you sit? Oh, it was all fields around here. It was all <laughs> analogue and traditional when I took over as uh, or started reporting at Marketing Week anyway. I suppose, well, actually, uh, leading on from what I've just uh, observed there, digital or data-driven digital has probably been the most significant factor, certainly in Marcoms, in execution, in tactics since I became or joined Marketing Week, I guess that's manifested itself in several different ways. It wasn't like digital or data didn't exist, but people used to talk in abstract when I first joined about big data. Remember that? People used to talk about big data as if it was some kind of amorphous living thing that uh, a black box that you had to try and penetrate. But anyway, data obviously was gleaned and became possible via digital and people were then 
very keen because there was a promise. There was a promise to reach people at scale and do so perhaps at less cost. And because at the same time we've been in some sort of perpetual state of economic uncertainty from sort of 2009, 2010 onwards, people are always looking at the bottom line and saw digital as a means, yes, ostensibly perhaps, to reach people in a more effective and personalised way. But actually, really, it was to reach people in a cheaper way. So I think that's manifested itself in several mm. different ways. It means that we just talk about these things more and people are more concerned in terms of skills and capability but also it has arguably and i think there's plenty of evidence to suggest so meant that or means that efficiency perhaps has started to trump yeah. effectiveness and i think that's the other lead on major significant thing um that's happened in my time people are mm. perhaps making decisions more and more by looking a spreadsheet rather than exploration and discovery and strategy so i think that's probably two or three related big things i think the other thing i was not at marketing week during the financial crash but joined not long afterwards certainly while the world was still recovering and i only mentioned that a because of the economic impact of that event which as i say in various different ways has perhaps seen ructions and and revealed ructions in various economic ways since. But I think the other thing is there is, and I know we'll go on to talk about this because it's one of the big issues of uh, the last few months. I think it's kind of led to uh, the rise of purpose. And that's the other thing. Nobody talked about purpose. I remember being at a conference in Brussels and listening to the then CMO of Johnson & Johnson in about 2011. It was certainly the first time I'd ever heard anybody talk about purpose. And I rushed back to the office thinking, there's this new thing. There's this, you know, people are talking about a wider sense of self and a, a wider reason to be. And obviously that's what we hear a lot from companies now. And the reason I talked about the financial crash without going off into too many, to too many tangents is I think there was that pushback against capitalism and this sense that maybe maybe some marketers not all marketers thought that they were part of a problem that their you know their their voracious appetite for growth and to sell things was somehow out of step with the time and out of step with a new sense of you know caring capitalism and i think that's perhaps at the root of it who knows but that's a topic purpose a discussion that hasn't gone away it hasn't at all and we'll come to that because it's it has dominated some of your headlines of course which we'll come on to when we talk about big news stories i wanted to ask you as well so our friend mark gritson of course has been an ever-present you know kind of celebrity in 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 the kind of marketing week orbit as it were what impact has he made to to what you've done over the last well i'd answer that question in two ways in terms of the, his impact on marketing week it's been huge to have somebody and I think I wouldn't hesitate to call him a genius at what he does. His, his depth of critical analysis is unrivaled and matched in marketing and marketing commentary and marketing journalism. So it's a total pleasure and a privilege to have him associated with Marketing Week, both in terms of his columns, but also in terms of the work that he does with the mini MBA, which 
if I strip back to use the word purpose, uh, the purpose of Marketing Week, if it's nothing, if it isn't to help people become more impactful and more influential. And if there's two ways to do that, it's to be critical, be the industry's critic. And Mark obviously plays a huge part in enabling us to to serve that purpose in that regard, but also be a cheerleader. Let's not forget, as much as people generally remember the colourful evisceration of purpose or digital, whatever it is that Mark is laying bare, he's also a champion. He cares. He cares about the industry and he cares about its elevation. And that's what we're trying to do anyway, ultimately to increase marketers' impact and influence. I wanted to ask about your positioning as well, because I mean, if I stereotype it a little bit you know in my career marketing week's always been the magazine in reception of the brand owner and campaigns always been in reception of the ad agency sort of thing and sort of campaigns been the cheerleader for you know for for, for creative advertising and purpose-led advertising as well marketing week's always felt like the 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 the, the one that's there to equip you to be more successful to, to as you say be the critique and to focus on evidence-based marketing I mean that's just how I'd perceive it but how do you position the magazine and how do you see its role I mean marketing week is a title I usually put it in a rather blunt manner for marketers about marketing and I guess what I mean by that well I mean if that isn't painfully obvious is that we have a very clear focus we write about marketing and that is in the round whether or not it be about that is in the round whatever it is we write about marketing in the round and because we write about marketing we are very clear on our target market which is marketers yes budget holders people who've got a bit of money to spend that our commercial partners cover but we write about marketing for marketers and you'll know better than anybody it's not necessarily about positioning against other people in the market but campaign has its campaign has its more things to more people where one thing to one group of people whether or not that be b2b or b2c but one group of people and what we've done perhaps increasingly over the last few years uh, certainly under my editorship, is start talking about marketing or horizontally. So talking about whether or not there be news, insight, features, opinions, talking about the things that marketers do that they that everybody in every sector shares. And again, that's helped us position and differentiate. If if I can uh, use very loose shares, and again, that's helped us position and differentiate. Let's move on to the biggest news stories of the year. It's been quite a year. Lots been happening in uh, 2021. And so what we decided to do was uh, find out what the big news stories have been over this year in Marketing Week. And we've, we've reduced it down to the seven biggest talking points of this year. Now, as we talked about our friend Mark Ritson, let's start with the use of the word digital. Should you have digital in your job title? Should you talk about digital as a separate um, discipline to marketing? And of course, we had two news stories that made the top 10 list. One was Connie, who was the new CMO over Unilever, talking about how the role of digital transformation should be included in marketing. And then Mark, of course, wrote a very entertaining column about why it's in the marketer's interest to pretend 
to be an expert on digital when an interview when of course you know they should be an expert on marketing and digital is merely a tactic you know not not a strategy itself i thought i'd read a couple of the things in the article which which amused me russell but of course you you'll be very familiar but um he, he sets up the sort of pretend interview going, as you know, the role of senior marketing manager at Acme Limited requires someone who can develop and execute a digital strategy. Is this something you have experience of? And of course, Mark replies, well, the correct answer is no, because if I ever de- develop a digital marketing strategy, I clearly have no idea what I'm doing. For starters, digital prefix is inherently tactical in nature. Don't get me wrong. I'm very familiar with the various digital tactics and what they can do. And they add to my arsenal. But before I get to that stage in the process, we need to fix the marketing strategy and that does not need a digital prefix added to it and, it, and then he goes on saying of course the prudent answer would be yes of course digital marketing is at the heart of every successful company we are a digital first after all and marketing has changed more in the last five years than the last 50 but as a digital native marketer i've seen these changes firsthand i know the old approaches are dead sort of thing and there's quite an and he goes on and on about you know what you should say in the interview so um Russell, what, what do you think is where on the digital spectrum should we be, do you think? <laughs> so I'm just remembering what was a fantastic article uh, delivered in a, yeah, delivered in a format. I mean, I suppose my own perspective behind both of those stories, before I actually attempt to give you an answer, and I'll probably sit firmly on the fence. Behind Mark's article last year, obviously, unfortunately, a lot of, very good marketers found themselves out of work through no fault of their own because, well, I don't need to explain to anybody listening why. And I saw a lot of job descriptions that were circulating for the jobs that were available. And they, in terms of required skills and competencies, I'd wager were at least twice the length that they usually are. And the reason that they were twice length that they usually are is because there was a lot more hard skills for want of a better way of putting it that were required and they generally came down to skills around technology around understanding of marketing technology and also the nuts and bolts of e-commerce and also just to give you the context behind the Unilever story that was one year after Connie the CMO joined and they've done or are doing a lot of digital upskilling work and also moving a lot more towards selling direct to consumer and uh, amplifying their e-commerce channels as well. So I suppose the two stories illustrate that the last year and a half, two years, has definitely highlighted this growing need or perhaps even brought it back because it might have been on the wane for a little while that you need to be a digital specialist you need to be digital first you need to think digitally and lead transformation in marketing i suppose as i said to you i i highlighted that i'd probably sit on the fence i I can't but help sympathize with mark digital is inherently tactical therefore if you are a digital marketer and a digital first marketer, then you are a tactics first marketer. And of course, you will know, John, I'm sure that any good marketer, anyone with a lasting legacy anyway, is going to be a strategist more or first rather than a, a tactician. So, of course, uh, 100% sympathy with what Mark is talking about there. But the reality is, and you've got one of the the biggest 
best thought of marketing organisations in the world in Unilever who wouldn't be doing this if they didn't feel that there was a need for it. They're not window dressing here. They're not just chasing the shiny new thing or the next trend. So there is obviously a need for marketers in terms of tactics and delivery, given that more and more people are operating online, and that's only going to increase, even if you're in consumer goods, to understand what it is, A, that their consumers are doing, where they are, and uh, how to better reach them. So there is a balance to be struck here. It's not quite as digital good or digital is bad. Of course it's not. But at the end of the day, if you are a marketer that has, going back to the job title, sorry, the job specs that I referred to at the beginning, if, you, if you're empathetic, if you're curious, if you see the big picture, if you're strategic, then that, they are the most important traits. But of course, at the same time, when you are seeking to deliver and execute, there is a need to have certain awareness and capability. So you can't close your eyes to tactics either. And if they are digitally driven tactics, yeah. then they are digitally driven tactics. I think the thing I've experienced is that if, if you've got digital in your job title or you think digital is the the only answer what you find it's a bit like if you're a hammer everything looks like a nail <laughs> and that's that i think is that what, what i've experienced is that you know to be successful you've, you've got to start with strategy what is the problem you're trying to solve who are you targeting what tactics are going to help you deliver that and of course digital is going to be incredibly important it may be more or less important depending on the particular sector you're in or the life stage of your brand or or, or the budget at your disposal etc cetera, etc cetera. but but i think the, the the risk when you have digital marketing teams that are separate and, I, and i've run i've run big marketing departments where we've separated the brand from the digital aspect is you get this kind of conflict where every answer in the digital team is digital and it's like it's almost we're going to work back from the you know from the twitter campaign backwards rather than from you know from the strategy forwards kind of thing and i think that's the main thing i've experienced when we've had the you know the the, the push and pull between are we digital yeah. first you know yeah i mean 100 percent. it's about outcomes isn't it it's about delivering um for the business and how you get there and the means to do it should serve that ultimate objective I think we're seeing it now as well. And actually, I think the pandemic kind of, as I alluded to earlier, it sort of brought it back because I thought that the, the argument had been won that digitalism means to deliver, but it isn't the beginning in the end. And I think actually the pandemic kind of brought it back and everybody was hopping around thinking digital transformation, digital transformation, without really understanding quite what that meant anyway. So it's it's come back. But actually, at the same time, or perhaps that was more prominent in terms of that siloed thinking was the, you know, this new notion, and it is relatively new, certainly new to me anyway, of brand marketers and performance marketers and never the twain Aha, shall yes. meet. And I think that's that was also a, a silo and also a big issue. And, well, we'll come uh, on to this because I firmly aviation. believe everything is performance and everything is brand. And I think the, the distinction, we'll come back to this when we talk about Tom Roach's funnel, because it's quite personal, it's that conversation. Let's go to the second big news story uh, of the year. And this is one close to my heart. And I'm really happy this is getting time and attention is, is B2B really different to B2C? And we've got, <laughs> you know, the B2B's very own Les and Peter, double acting John Lombardo and Peter Weinberg, who uh, I know very well from, from the work we do at 
at LinkedIn. Fabulous dynamic duo who are, who are really moving the conversation forward in the B2B space, which is brilliant. In fact, at System One, we did some testing of the 1500 B2B ads and actually found they were less effective than B2C overall by quite a margin, actually, which might be, mean that B2B doesn't have the budget or it's not getting the focus or there isn't the same kind of discipline uh, being applied to it. But do, do you think B2B has a reputation problem? I mean, it's so important. I mean, from my experience, I've always, if you don't win B2B, then you don't win, you know, in many cases, in FMCG, which has been my experience, you have to win your customers because that's how you get physical availability. And it's like, if you don't do that job properly, then you then you don't win the B2C. And, and obviously, if you are a pure B2B business, then everything is, you know, your your business success overall depends on your ability to market B2B. Do you think as a as an industry, we've underserved the importance of B2B and we haven't spent the time understanding how it works? Oh, goodness. Uh, a lot to dig into there. <laughs> I'm not sure I know the answer to that question, really. I mean, let me let me let me perhaps ask and answer another question that I think you asked as well or maybe didn't but i'll just i'll just talk for a bit b2b is i think mark b2b marketers i think are suffering in the same way as b2c marketers in terms of the influence that they have internally this is rather a crude observation and based upon anecdote i will confess but the the likelihood of a b2b marketer sort of operating exclusively at the bottom of the funnel at execution level at lead generation at use uh, lead generation uh, sorry at, uh, at delivery to sales it's is probably more pronounced than it is in b2c but again any b2b marketer uh, listening who wants to disagree with me well perhaps you can disagree with me now that, that you operate in that space so i think that means that uh, a lot of the strategy is delivered to them and it's delivered by non-marketers uh, to B2B. So I think that influence issue perhaps with B2B is greater. I think to Peter and John's point, the B2B marketing is the same as B2C marketing at a strategic level, but very much different at tactical level. But if you are robbed of the opportunity to have a strategic say in the direction of your business, then of course, it's going to be very significantly different, but also have that impact on influence and your ability to actually make a difference in your organization. It's funny, at Marketing Week, as I said at the beginning, I've been here a while and we always get complaints that we don't operate, uh, we don't cover B2B enough. And whenever I do anything with Mark Ritson, for example, people always ask him the question, is it any different in B2B? And he always says the same. No, it isn't. In terms of strategic fundamentals, strategic fundamentals even, it's exactly the same, which obviously falls very much in the the same space as John and Peter. Again, I'm not sure if I'm actually answering your question, but I think they do suffer from influence. And I think there is this sense that somehow uh, B2B marketing isn't quite as, I don't know, sexy and impressive and the kind of thing that you can convey and and be proud of because you know, the, the means to execute are very, yeah. very different. Well, we'll probably tie back to it when we talk about Tom Roach's funnel amendments that he proposed this year, because it will be coming as that. But my experience has been that some of the fundamentals of, you know, appealing to 
the, all the buyers in the category that actually in B2B, it, it's as much emotion as it is rational thought as well, that actually not everybody is buying you right now and therefore building a brand so they can consider you in the future. You buy, you know, creating future demand is, is and I think the trap that B2B marketers fall in is that they think that their job is pure conversion and rational justification and they forget all the kind of science that goes behind great marketing behavioral science and the principles of Ehrenberg Bass all those things also apply we don't stop being human beings because you know we're suddenly you know in, in a work environment we don't our brains don't suddenly go into different mode so I'm probably with Mark actually in that it's 90% the same it's just the tactics and the audience are different yeah. and I think that's 100%. where we go wrong I mean, what's been great about working with John and Peter and them writing the monthly column that they do for Marketing Week is that they are applying the same rigor. They're applying the same standard, which in itself will elevate B2B marketing ultimately. Uh, So I think they're doing a grand job. Well done to the LinkedIn B2B Marketing Institute. But of course, and this is where I fall because I just don't know the specifics, but at the, the pointy end, then it does get quite rational because you are dealing often with the bigger B2B organizations with a lot of money. You're asking your customers to part with a lot of cash. So it does become it does become rational. But at the beginning, it needs to be about emotion. It needs to be about storytelling. It needs to be about all of the fundamentals. It has to be. I mean, even without actually being a practitioner, it seems to yeah. me to be a 101. It is, 100%. And, and, and you're absolutely right, is there's a lot less information and expertise and understanding of that area. So I think the opportunity John and Peter have got, you know, to, to, to really elevate what at the moment is a fairly low base, I think is brilliant. So, you know, kind of credit to you for, for you know, giving that the time and focus. I think it's really good. And, and I think the other thing as well is that I think everyone, everyone is a B2B marketer. If you think about it, you know, we are all pitching ourselves in every business relationship. You know, B2B might be the internal customers within your organization that you need to get budget signed off. You know, it might be Tesco if you're, you know, want to get a listing. It might be, your, you know, the customers that come through your website or, you know, phone up on the customer service line. And, that, and I think we need to realize that B2B is just business. It's just how business is done. And it just happens to be the transaction rather than the end customer. But it's really important. So I, I think that's why I'm passionate about it, because I think real B2B skills are essential to every marketer. And they need to, even if they're the B2C, you know, person, they're, they're doing B2B all the time. They just don't realize it, you know. So that's why I think it, it can benefit everyone. Amen to that, John. Amen hey, to that. Good. Well, listen, let's get, we're going to get to a spicy topic next and it's got everybody going and um, we've already mentioned it, but the, the, the two big news, to, well, two big articles in the top 10, purpose, and we talked about it earlier, you know, purpose is dead, long live purpose sort of thing. And of course, and in fact, I had the privilege because Orlando, my colleague, was launching his new book at F Week and the presentation before him God bless him, was was Peter Field talking about purpose. And I, I just quickly g- give my perspective on it because it was it was it was good to listen to him articulate what he was trying to do. Now, Peter went out of his way actually to say when he's introduced himself, I'm gonna get criticized, everyone's gonna jump on me, and I'm doing what shouldn't be done you know, in research, which is I can't remember the phrase he used about something about the constant variable. Anyway, he used a phrase which is basically taking a subset of data that flatters the outcome. But what he was trying to do and, and what I heard him do was basically say, look, on, on average, purpose 
is less effective than non-purpose overall in the data set. But there are some occasions where purpose works, and I'm going to show you what they are and what and how they might benefit an organization. And there are some unintended, not, not unintended, but there are some extra benefits you get, like employees feel happier about the company. It's more effective in B2B relationships. You want to do business with people that have got a purpose. You know, it, it, it gives reputational benefits. I think what you're saying is it occasionally works as a, as a brand strategy, but it also has all these other benefits. So I think he was making that case. And of course, he got... Um, you know, he got taken down a peg or two, didn't he, by the by the great and the good. And of course, you know, and I I also sympathise actually with what Byron Sharp was saying is that, and, and I do love this about Byron, is that we must demonstrate the contribution marketing delivers for business, for the for society, and for the world economy as a whole. And and I I feel quite passionate about that because as a marketer, when you're sat in the boardroom. The finance person's got their numbers. The sales director's got their sales. You know, HR have got their internal satisfaction metrics. The factory have got their operational efficiency. And the marketer goes, oh, well, we got a lot of likes on our social media posts yesterday. And, and it, it, can, it can feel like, you're, you're, you know, you don't have the credibility and weight. And I think what I love about Aeroberg Bass is let's be evidence-based. Let's, be, let's measure and track what we do and let's remember the contribution that we have as marketers to grow our brands create jobs drive you know drive the economy and that kind of thing so, so i love that but i did feel that you know we've taken these extreme positions on purpose when in fact there are times when purpose actually is a good ta- it's back to our digital thing actually purpose might be a good tactic but let's solve the strategy first in terms of what the right things to do as a brand isn't and maybe there was a bit to quote mark's bothism the long and the short is is maybe there's an argument that there are times and places where purpose actually has a good role to play and there are times when corporately it's the right thing to do but we shouldn't throw and i think what peter was saying is let's not throw the baby out of the bathwater. anyway sorry a slightly long introduction to the question but um, i'd love to hear what, what what did you make of the debate who's right who's wrong where do you land on this one well, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna fall into the bothism camp actually because I, I think I do have sympathy with what they were both saying. I mean, I interviewed Byron for the Festival of Marketing, which is where that story came from, and the premise of the conversation was that marketing does have a hell of a lot to offer. It's not necessarily the things that people think. Uh, it is though, and perhaps we should be prouder about the contribution that marketers can make to the economy and not be queasy about it either. Staring people right in the face is a purpose uh, and a good purpose, and that's generating income. It's uh, ultimately generating taxes. In the case of products that are for hygiene, then that has a very clear function that has a wider purpose and a wider offer for the world that was byron's point of view and i ultimately agree with it because i think there is a queasiness i alluded to at the beginning that somehow marketers have become part of a problem a problem with capitalism full stop and marketers need to change and perhaps reflect and amend their behavior and that sort of tried to that's begun to manifest itself in in brand stretching and becoming a bit authentic with this wider purpose, a worthwhile sense of good, but vacuous and, and, and not borne out by actual function or in some cases corporate behaviour. So I do agree with Byron Sharp, but I also agree with Peter as well. I mean, I 
I'm not, I said this on LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago, I'm not really clever enough to work out whether or not his methodology was right. And a lot of the criticism that was leveled at him was because of the methodology that he used. And I'm not a a researcher, I'm not a statistician or a scientist. So I, I have no clue whether or not he was, his subset therefore was unrepresentative. He recognised that and he recognised that actually when he, he talked. And so I think the reason it mattered was it, it created the wrong headline because the headline it created is we, we shouldn't dismiss purpose. Purpose is good. Purpose drives results. And and I, I, I sort of in my article, my LinkedIn, I kind of rewrote it and said, on average, purpose doesn't is not effective as non-purpose, but occasionally it does work. And when it does work, this is the reason it works. So the answer is sometimes purpose works. And I, I think that's what it was. It's very binary, isn't it? Is that you know, people write art, you know, people take one end and this is where the both, you know, it, it, the answer was, it sometimes works. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it does sometimes work. Of course, it sometimes works. The thing is, I think some of the sting needs to be taken out of it because it's a really emotive subject. The fact that we've got two articles that are amongst the most read, uh, not necessarily that far apart. They're, they're less apart actually. than people think. When you drill the down, yeah, exactly. much less. But I mean, my, my take on it and it it might be crude and, and desperately ill-informed, is that uh, the word purpose uh, has somehow become misappropriated both by its critics and its cheerleaders. It's actually more about meaningful differentiation, about emotion and about creating emotion around your brand. That doesn't mean that on one hand you should be talking about, you know, a wider contribution to society and the other hand doing desperately what you can to avoid or evade taxation. Um, but, you know, and that's where you're going to get into trouble when you overstretch and overreach. Actually, maybe what it actually is, is uh, is it, it, we shouldn't be talking about purpose. We should be talking about reaching your North Star, which sounds as fluffy, perhaps, as purpose. But it it's about actually having a reason to be and about a sense of self and about very being very clear on what your contribution is and what you can offer your customers and in some cases a society as well and some brands and some products have that ability I'm all, I've been a great admirer of um, Direct Line and I don't know if they talk about purpose but they might as well be Direct Line is a really progressive certainly for the insurance sector marketing organization under Mark and Carrie and the team there and I'm pretty sure they talk about their purpose being kind of enthusiastically solving problems for people. And that's what insurance is at, at, at its core. And that's how they've sought to elevate themselves beyond price and price comparison with the fixer and with we're on it. And to me, that's purpose. I love that. I, I love um, your distinction there because actually it's like, what is your purpose and what are you uniquely on this planet to do and solve? that your customer cares about. And in fact, Peter made reference to that. He said, when purpose works, it's when it's intrinsically part of the service or brand you deliver and your audience care about this particular thing. And you go, well, of course, right? That's when it becomes a good strategy. And I think what people probably react to is when they see purpose as a performative signaling effort, which isn't authentically tied to the reason the product exists. Yeah. Yeah. You've nailed it next all right listen let, listen i'm very excited about the next one okay because everybody listening <laughs> is going to be very happy when they hear this next one because it, it, it made the top 10 marketing salaries 
are up, ladies and gentlemen. So listen, the reason why I'm sure most people listening have got a horror story from the last 18 months. I know, you know, I had to take a temporary pay cut. I know lots of people that did, you know, the phone definitely went quiet on the, you know, on the headhunter front. What a difference a year makes, right? So reading about marketing salaries are up, long-term incentives are up. There's a demand for, there's, there's, a, there's a shortage of good talent. And you were saying, I know, you know, a year or so ago, the number of talented marketers out there that, you know, were out of roles, that seems to have flipped on its head in just a year. So uh, have, I, have I taken too much out of this? Is it good news? I suppose it, it's better than the rather dire situation, the desperate situation that you've just described. Although I think there's probably a few caveats not to to row back on our own news story, which was good and very well reported by my colleague Michaela. I think obviously we were coming from a slightly lower base and as we've seen with the economy at large, when you basically force the ground to a halt, then there's going to be a dramatic increase and perhaps a headline grabbing increase. But at the core of it, I think we've got a couple of truths behind this story. Yes, there's been salary bumps, but I think that's been driven by a lot of people looking to move and also it's uh, driven by a lot of the demand for some of those technical and digital skills that we talked about earlier so talent is at a premium actually not so much or not necessarily at the senior end maybe in the middle and perhaps even at the more junior end in terms of some of the other conversations that we've got a lot of marketers are telling me that they can't hire it's taking them an age to hire the right kind of people at the moment Yes, it's taking a long time. A year ago, it was super quick to hire and there was a surplus of talent. I mean, I, I, hired, I hired two people earlier this year who were way overqualified for the job. Huge experience. I was so you know fortunate to be able to hire them when I did. But speaking to recruiters now, they're saying, you know, when the pandemic hit, everyone was after finance and particularly sales to kind of plug the short term gap and solve the short term. But now we've come out the other side, suddenly everyone's faced with how do we grow? Where do we go? All the questions now are more strategic. And that's where the, the kind of CMO briefs are starting to to land again. Yeah, I mean, that's and it's, it's classic supply and demand, isn't it? There is a huge demand for people because headcount was reduced significantly, plus there's a whole lot of new challenges that the pandemic has thrown up. So supply, sorry, demand is great. Supply for the right kind of people, plus those that are in the market or in demand, know that they're in a position of leverage. So we are going to look, or we are going to continue to see in the medium term, never mind short term, inflation in job salaries i think that's that's definitely something that's going to continue into 2022 the next one now this was a surprise in the top 10 i have to admit and this is no disrespect to our friend tom roach who i'm a massive fan of he's one of the smartest people i know but it took me by surprise actually just how much conversation his funnel analysis i guess the funnel is one of the oldest kind of you know models in in marketing as tom said in his in his piece, it's really accelerated as digital, you know, has adopted the funnel way of thinking. And there's a number of things that struck me about, you know, his article, which, you know, I kind of thought was helpful is that the the old model that just talks about awareness perhaps doesn't do a good enough job of mental availability, of course, which we know from Ehrenberg Bass, you know, consideration is very system two. And we know that actually emotion is incredibly important to how people buy decisions i think you know he evolved that and a statistic that i noticed which i i didn't know which was very enlightening was we talk about conversion we talked earlier about b2b marketers 
And he said 99.93% of online advertising doesn't get a click through, which I think is fantastic statistic because then it makes you realize actually the role of online advertising might just be to build your brand, which I think is the interesting thing about performance versus brand building. I'm a brand marketer, I'm a performance marketer. Well, actually, as a brand builder, we need to measure the impact and track how our brand building is performing, long and short. But also as performance marketer, we need to recognize back to our John and Peter at B2B Institute, how you can build a brand online as well. And actually Orlando in his new book, Look Out, talks about actually some of the brand building techniques that we see above the line. If those are applied in in feed environments, actually improve our attention. They increase click through rates and some fascinating insight about how, you know, you don't have to sell to sell, you know, as it were, online. So, so that's fascinating. And I really liked, I really liked what Tom did. I, I did ask him actually, you know, because I know Mark replied and said every funnel should be bespoke. And well, I think what Tom was saying is he'd like to build a world, a better funnel from which to start with, you know, to then then go and create something more bespoke. But um, why why is the funnel such a hot topic? I, I, if you had asked me to guess, I would not have put this up at number two, but but there we go. It is. <laughs> so uh, what's your take on yeah, this? Yeah, no, it, it took off as uh, did that story. And before I actually answer your question, can I just say how happy I am to see a story or a, an article uh, like that performing so well, because I really want to be as... I'm probably going to offend a bunch of people when I say this as nerdy as possible with Marketing Week. So I want to talk about funnels. I want to talk about the absolute nuts and bolts of what people do. Now, I know I'm not a practitioner, as I've said at least five times already, so I don't really know much about funnels. So I'll apply some journalistic logic. There is um, an adage in Fleet Street that if it bleeds, it leads. That's not the case with Marketing Week, not the case necessarily with trade magazines but what works for trade magazines for marketing week in particular is something that's fundamental but also flawed and i think the funnel definitely uh, ticks both of those boxes it's fundamental to most marketers everybody's been taught it everybody has an opinion about it everybody applies it or most people do Um, but everybody acknowledges and recognizes that there is a different way so anybody who articulates a different way and articulates it in as cogent a manner as Tom did then it's going to get read and I think there was another article this year that we're not going to talk about today but from James Hankins around the funnel which also took off sadly James sorry not quite as spectacularly as Tom's it it just goes to show there is a genuine and perennial interest in these subjects one of my favourite Tom quotes, and I don't know if it's his quoting himself or it's someone else's, all models are flawed, some are useful. <laughs> There's a T-shirt in that somewhere. There I'm is, isn't there? Sure. And, you know, uh, do I prefer Tom's funnel to the old funnel? Yes, 100%. You know, is it perfect? No, but is it useful? Yes. You know, and, I, you know, and again, you know, having worked in lots of B2B situations and B2C, it, it, it varies depending on what you're selling, your route to market, your particular customers, the length of time between buying cycles, the level of whether you're starting or, you know, small brand, big brand. I mean, in fact, I had Grace Kite on and she was talking about the long and the short of it or the right and the wrong of it, I think she said. And she showed me all these examples of the long and the short apply to different brands. And, and, and I said, OK, so we can't categorically say it works the same. Everywhere. She goes, no, the answer to almost every marketing question is 
it depends, <laughs> you know, which I thought, what a brilliant quote, you know, and, and it doesn't, it, the models are a great start point and a framework, but they're never the answer. You've got to use it as the start point to do the work, get, you know, do the research, get the data and understand how your, how your market operates. Well, listen, let's get, let's get to the number one feature, which is kind of ironic because I actually get a quote in this one, which is I didn't realise until I read it. But our, yes, I know, our maker, you know, who, who else could be controversial enough to become the most read other than our friends at BrewDog? I mean, geez, what a year BrewDog have had this year. You know, fake gold cans, employees writing open letters, criticising the culture, ASA ban. I mean, do you know what? ASA banning a BrewDog ad is not really a news story. It's like an annual event. <laughs> so... I don't know. It, it's become a. They've become like the. It's a bit like John Lewis, isn't it? It's be, they've become very predictably, you know, talked about, controversial, well known, or whatever sort of thing. One of the questions I had is, you know, Mark Ritson wrote a, an article about Facebook and said, despite all the trust issues we all have in Facebook, their sales are up over fifty percent year on year. I guess the question I've got, and again, I, you know, I, I should probably know the answer, is: to what extent do you think? the negative news stories have actually harmed BrewDog or have in fact they just grown the infamy and fame of the brand and made them more mentally available? As usual, I will probably sit somewhere on the fence and say maybe both. Uh, Let me explain. Or or let me say actually before I actually even attempt to answer your question. Yes, you're right. The story in question almost was a, a culmination of quite a few things that came quite close together. The story in question is actually about an, an ASA ban, but it very much came in the slipstream of some of the questions and revelations around the culture, which perhaps I should be asking you about, which is why you were quoted in the piece, but we'll come on to that. Now, whether or not this or that, which I think is the bigger issue here, the ASA ban is just part of the infamy and the fame and and can I just say, I found, or generally still do, and this isn't me being a craft beer snob, and I am, but I just found Brewdog tiresome and really annoying. The whole anti-advertising, advertising shtick is just so painfully dull. Just do it or don't, but just get on with it. But anyway, soapbox Well, the irony was, it, it, it was one year was the anti-advertising advert, advert. The following year was the most mainstream, wide-appealing, we're for yeah, everybody advert uh, ever the, the, sort of thing in one year. The, so they're all over yeah. the place. I mean, this, this, the, the cult of Brewdog and the cult of James Watt. But anyway, I'll, I'll leave that uh, for a conversation for another day. But that aside, the ASA thing is just norm. It's it, In fact, they're probably licking their lips an opportunity to go back to their usual stick around uh, the, you know, the demon regulator thing. But anyway, uh, I think the bigger problem uh, for BrewDog, but it isn't necessarily a reputational one. I don't know if it's going to impact sales. It probably won't. I remember on the day that we wrote the story and that the story was breaking around the the open letter from former employees around the culture of the toxicity of the culture at BrewDog. Uh, I was, I think it was around the European Championships. I was in uh, my local Sainsbury's and there was a chap taking a 12 pack of BrewDog Elvis, whatever it is, off the shelves. And I I didn't do this, so this is a bit of a redundant story. But I felt like asking him, have you heard what's been happening with uh, BrewDog? Have you you heard that there's a lot of question marks over the way that they treat their staff? And, And I didn't. But of course, he probably hadn't heard that. I'm not 
casting aspersions on how close and connected that gentleman was with the news. But he saw the branding. Perhaps there was something in the emotional laddering around Brewdog over the last two or three years that had increased that mental availability. It was on offer, no doubt. It was during the European Championships. Right time, right place, put it on the shelf, went away. Probably will make the same decision again if the cir- same circumstances lie. Now, we need to follow up that story and find out whether or not it has had any impact on consideration or, or trust or sales. But my sense is it probably hasn't. It probably hasn't impacted them at all because we've seen, I mean, Mark's piece that you referred to there, there was lots of examples, whether or not it be Facebook, whether or not it be Volkswagen a couple of years ago, where these scandals, these question marks do make a lot of noise or generate a lot of noise, a lot of headlines, but they don't necessarily filter through to people who are buying their products or engaging with them in any way, shape or form. And I'm not sure, but I suspect it won't have that impact. I think BrewDog's bigger problem is attracting people. And as I say, you can perhaps speak to this question more than I can pontificating about it. Uh, BrewDog needs staff, it needs good people, it needs progressive people, it needs excellent marketers. It is a big brand now. It's not some rebel outsider. You can get it everywhere. You can get it at my local shop as much as you can get it in Tesco's. It needs people who can scale it even more. And it needs talented marketers as well as it needs talented people of any function and any profession. And if you're reading what you read that day and you're reading around it do you want to work there uh, russell i th- i i think you've hit the nail on the head in fact my, my response to it was there's probably a small b2c impact so when we ran the testing on their latest advert we, we had a few examples two or three percent of people commenting on the employee letter and the gold can thing so there's a there's some evidence that it's filtered through to people but overall probably not i think it's a b2b problem because, you know, how do you work with the best agencies? How do you employ the best people? How do you float on the stock market in the next 18 months when, you know, the regulators are asking to prove you've got the right processes in place and checks and balances? So I think actually, how do you raise more funding from investors when they do their due diligence and they look back and go, well, hang on a second, we, we've seen a consistent, you know, neglect of, of, of due process, et cetera. So I think it's a B2B damage is, is I think, where it's going to be felt the most, as you say, not being able to recruit talent, etc. That, I think, is the bigger issue for James and Martin. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's all of those things. And I don't wish anybody ill, but I do wish that they'd sort their whatever it is that is causing a lot of people, yourself included, uh, to leave after a short space of time is not going to bode well for the future. Absolutely. Very, very good. Well, listen, let's let's wrap up as it's Christmas. Oh, it feels like Christmas because we've had two weeks of Christmas ads breaking every day. I know it's not what we're doing. We're, we're still not even halfway through November, but it feels like it's Christmas. Russell, give us your... Who's going to win the best Christmas ad this year? Where's your money going? Oh, I suppose the, the short... Let me give you a short and a slightly longer answer. I think Aldi's brilliant. Uh, I think Aldi are just a brilliant advertiser, generally, both creative interesting, innovative, but also very effective as well, as seen by a recent Effie's win. Their Christmas ad is just as good as 
the Kevin the Carrot ones have been in recent years, but has got the Marcus Rashford uh, factor, which is never going to be a bad thing. And dare I even say it, perhaps as a purpose <laughs> to misappropriate my own misappropriation or something, that will probably sing quite loudly. But the longer answer is I'm not sure that any big brand campaign is that effective and that winning. I think certainly when it comes to supermarkets and retailers generally, it's the stuff on the ground, you know, it's the two for one offers. It's the, it's the facilitation of value at Christmas. It's probably gonna mean that you win out and the brand campaigns obviously do perform and do serve a purpose, but I'm not sure that they're the most important factor in any retailer in particular having a successful Christmas. Well, it's funny actually, because I, I get the benefit at work at System One of seeing all the data and scores and uh, and all come in, and, and and it's the one time where I always say to people, Christmas is about tradition. It's about doing what is familiar. It's about connection with family. It's about nostalgia, and actually, it's one time of the year where it's good not to break the rules. And actually, evidence of that, of course, is the Coke Holidays Are Coming ad, which has gone from three point eight star on System One to five point nine star, uh, which is the top of the scale. And that's partly what we love about Christmas. It's going home. It's being with those we love. It's it's things that remind us about what we love about Christmas. And I think perhaps if I've got any criticism of advertisers, it's it's a desire to break the rules and change the formula. And and, and it's probably the one time a year where actually a bit of conservatism is is rewarded. And that I think what Audi have done very cleverly is it, 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 the Audi ad. I think is almost the quintessential Christmas ad. You've got the Christmas Carol. You've got the Pogues. You've got you know all the Christmas jokes in there you've got everything you've got a story you've got scrooge you know it, it's almost like the perfect blend of everything christmas and you've got the food you know you've got, it's all there isn't it so i'm um, giggling along at the thought that aldi is the shane mcgowan of yes <laughs> yes but they, 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 they've you know what i admire about aldi is they've they've come from relatively nowhere to really being symbolic of christmas and great christmas advertising and they in kevin the carrot they've created a familiar brand asset which you know people already are knowing and loving in in just four or five years so it's a top job well listen as soon as the scores come out that we're waiting for them now we'll be able to announce the the official top five or ten very shortly so look out for that listen russell thank you so much for giving us uh, your take on the on the biggest headlines of this year so just to end with what should we be looking out next year what do you think is going to be the conversation we're going to have Oh, goodness. I'm going to answer your question without really answering your question. I think the conversations people should be having, I don't know if you've heard this or indeed anybody listening, maybe this is just in the in the trade bubble, but I've heard a lot of people talking about this is marketing's moment. That's been a mantra that I've heard, certainly since pandemic and the narrative and reasoning goes that, you know, if any, if ever there was a time for somebody to lead on behalf of a customer and become... Uh, or to lead customer centricity and make it more than a buzzword, then the time is now. And obviously marketers being the voice of the customer ostensibly are best placed to lead that ultimate transformation. And I think all of that is true. I suppose it begs the question, why weren't people thinking and doing that anyway? But that aside, I think that is absolutely true. But in order to do that, there's some pretty basic things and we've discussed them throughout or alluded to them throughout it's about making sure that you are delivering business outcomes and promising business outcomes rather than focusing on marketing metrics and 
measurement and loads of other fundamentals but you know this is marketing's time people should get out of bed on january the first and skip to work with a sense of possibility and optimism Again, referring back to some of the things that Byron Sharp was talking about, there is a real role and a real power to transform that marketers have. But there's some pretty basic things, some 101 things in terms of measurement and demonstration and articulation of success that needs sorting out. So there's plenty on the to-do list, but plenty to be optimistic about as we get ready for 2022 as well. Fantastic. Well, what 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 better place to end than, than the optimism of 2022 and how, of course, Marketing Week can be by everyone's side, giving them the data, information, inspiration and, and training to be successful as well. Russell, thank you. If people want to get in touch with you, where can you be found? You can get me on uh, LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. So please do drop me a note there. I'll be happy to hear from you if you want to join us in our mission to increase your impact and influence. And you can also get me at russell.parsons at xeim.com. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. Russell, thank you so much. Appreciate hearing your thoughts on uh, this year and next and uh, look forward to talking again. Pleasure to talking to you today, John. Thanks a lot. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. They were the most talked about, most downloaded, most read articles and topics of 2021. I wonder what we're talking about in 2022. Well, to find out, of course, then you'll need to follow Russell and Marketing Week to be updated with the latest and greatest stories of marketing. Listen, if you enjoyed that, there are many, many other podcasts from the Uncensored CMO. If you want to stay informed and never miss an episode, then please do subscribe. It's the easiest way to be kept up to date with episodes as they come out. Just go to Apple Podcasts, click on the subscribe button. If you want to leave me a review, I'll be very, very grateful. Reviews are so important as the podcast grows. They are great endorsements and a way of kind of getting extra people into the show. You can leave me a review, remembering, of course, that five is best. But no, honestly, I do really appreciate comments and reviews. And you can drop me a line with any suggested topics or guests that you'd like to have on the show. If you want to follow me on LinkedIn, you can find me over at John Evans. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Uncensored CMO. So thanks so much for listening. I really do appreciate your support and I look forward to you joining me on the next episode of Uncensored CMO.